A few nights after September the 22nd, 1862, a band came to serenade the 16th president. Moved by the music and supportive crowd, Abraham Lincoln stepped onto the executive mansion's balcony and referring to his recent Emancipation Proclamation, remarked, I can only trust in God I have made no mistake. It is now for the country and the world to pass judgment on it, and maybe take action upon it. But for the president, first things first, to put teeth into his executive proclamation, he would have to win the war, and that prompted him to leave Washington City and travel to the site of this country's bloodiest single day, his ostensible purpose to review the Army of the Potomac, his added incentive to prod the Army's cautious commander, Major General George Brenton McClellan, into action. This is the story of the President's visit to Sharpsburg, Maryland, his pilgrimage to the banks of Antietam Creek. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. Over a century and a half ago, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Though its objectives were limited in immediate scope, the document paved the way for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the eradication of slavery making former slaves citizens, and declaring that the right to vote could not be denied on account of race, color, or previous period of servitude. Yes, on top of Lincoln's original stated purpose for fighting the war, preserving the Union, the struggle now had another national objective, but Mr. Lincoln's executive directive had added intentions— it hoped to deny a large workforce to the Confederacy, and the president hoped its stated purpose would continue to keep European recognition of the Confederacy at arm's length. On the timing of Lincoln's announcement and on the heels of the repulse of Lee's army from Maryland, Lincoln stated, We must change our tactics or lose the game. And so he would act. Nine days after Lincoln's pronouncement, Gideon Wells, his Secretary of the Navy, made his way to the President's residence. It was the morning of the first day of October, 1862. Upon Wells' arrival, he was told the President was not there, and his whereabouts in return unknown. Wells, like the rest of the 16th President's cabinet, had no idea that he had decided to go into the field, thank his army, and impress on its leader that his forces must be a hammer, a tool to give his proclamation real teeth. Even as Mr. Wells made his way to the executive mansion, the president and five traveling companions were aboard a train that carried them from Washington City across Maryland. Awaiting the commander-in-chief, 
was Major General George B. McClellan and his Army of the Potomac. The president wanted to see firsthand the army that had driven Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia from Maryland only a little over two weeks ago. He wanted in person to persuade his cautious general to pursue the bloodied Confederates into Virginia. The two had a long history, and it had been a roller coaster relationship. An earlier campaign, McClellan's failed Peninsula campaign, was still a sore subject for both. In the general's mind, his campaign in the spring of 1862 had been deliberately sabotaged by those in Washington who withheld reinforcements so as, he believed, to prolong the conflict until the hated abolitionists grew strong enough to turn the war into a revolution against slavery with all its attendant Jacobin horrors and thus poisoning all chance of reunion. Expecting the president's visit, McClellan wrote his wife, I incline to think that the real purpose of his visit is to push me into a premature advance into Virginia. Even McClellan's loyal lieutenants were wary of the president's visit. They remembered all too well Lincoln and meddling politicians amidst them down on the James River last spring and summer. Of their visit, Major General Fitz John Porter, in command of the Fifth Corps, warned the world correspondent Manton Marble that such visits have always been followed by injury. So look out, another proclamation or war order. For this trip, and fully aware of the military paranoia, Lincoln chose his travel companions carefully. One was Major General John A. McLaren who was a past acquaintance from Illinois. He was invited because of Lincoln's political savvy, show bipartisanship, and though a political general put McClellan at ease as both McLaren and he were Democrats. Lincoln and McLaren first met during their days in the Illinois state legislature. Then McLaren was a strong supporter of Stephen A. Douglas. When war came, he was on the field at Shiloh and roundly criticized U.S. Grant's generalship there, claimed his division had saved the day. As you might surmise, McLaren was boastful, ambitious. Tact was not a part of his chemistry. Looking out for himself was. Another gentleman from Illinois came along. Ozias M. Hatch was a close personal friend of Lincoln's. In Illinois many years before, Hatch opened a store in Griggsville. Later, he was named a clerk of the circuit court. In 1856, Lincoln helped to get Hatch's name listed as a candidate for the Illinois position of Secretary of State. With Lincoln's help, he won. It was in Hatch's office that attorneys from the Eighth Circuit gathered to map out Lincoln's presidential nomination in 1860. And Hatch was with Lincoln during the Republican nominating convention and spent election night with him as the returns rolled in. After Lincoln's victory, it was Hatch who accompanied the newly elected president from Springfield to Indianapolis. It had been 18 months since the two had seen one another, and so both looked forward to catching up. It certainly helped that Lincoln knew Hatch presented absolutely no threat to the military. 
Another close friend and companion for the trip was yet another Illinois politician and current presidential bodyguard, Ward Hill Lehman. In this instance, opposites attracted. Lincoln was no singer. Lehman would at the drop of a hat. Lincoln was a reader, a thinker, one given to meditate. Lehman played the banjo and was impulsive. Lincoln was not fond of alcohol. Lehman enjoyed it. Back in Illinois, they had been law partners and traveled the circuit courts together. When, after winning the presidency, ceremonies were planned for Lincoln's departure from Springfield, Lehman presided. In the first months of 1861, it was he who learned of the assassination attempt that was to be attempted when Lincoln passed through Baltimore. It was Lehman who changed travel plans to get him safely to Washington City. The trust was so great that Lincoln sent Lehman to Charleston as his personal representative back in March of 1861, just before Fort Sumter was fired upon. Currently, Lehman was marshal for the District of Columbia. There were also personal reasons for Lehman to make the trip. His home place was near Winchester, Virginia, and he spent much of his boyhood years in the Harper's Ferry area. One last note about Lehman. On the night of Lincoln's assassination some two and a half years later, Lehman was on an assignment in Richmond. Until the day he died in 1893, Ward Hill Lehman never forgave himself for not being by Lincoln's side that awful night at Ford's Theater. Oh, and probably the most important reason why Lehman was along, he was one of the few friends that Mary Todd Lincoln actually trusted. A Pennsylvanian was also in the entourage, Joseph C.G. Kennedy, who had served as the superintendent of the census. He was an authority on statistics, on munitions, and I'm sure Lincoln was interested in his assessment of the Army of the Potomac's readiness. The final companion was 42-year-old John W. Garrett, who was the president of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and who had graciously provided the cars to and from Lincoln's destination. And so it would be that on Wednesday, October the 1st, 1862, at 6 a.m. on a cool fall morning, Lincoln and his party departed from the nation's capital, and they made their way across the Maryland countryside through Ellicott City, Mount Airy, Monrovia, Monocacy Junction, Point of Rocks, Berlin, and around noon, a point just opposite the war-ravaged town at the confluence of the Potomac and Shenandoah Rivers, Harper's Ferry. Out of the cars, Lincoln's party crossed into town via a pontoon bridge. They passed by the crumbling walls of the destroyed U.S. arsenal and made their way up the steep hill to find the headquarters of Edwin Sumner, who commanded the Second Corps of the Army of the Potomac, the corps that back on the 17th of September had been mauled at the West Woods and in the sunken road. On the same day that Lincoln announced his Emancipation Proclamation, Sumner led his corps into Harper's Ferry to reoccupy and garrison with McClellan, who had come down for the president's arrival, a review of Sumner's Second Corps was planned. There, at the top of Bolivar Heights, 
There were cheers and a 21-gun salute. And then the commander-in-chief and commanding general of the Army of the Potomac reviewed survivors of the Battle of Antietam. During the review, McClellan pointed out the 15th Massachusetts, which had suffered mightily in the West Woods. Fired upon by friend and foe alike, they had taken 318 casualties, more than half the regiment, and in numbers, the highest regimental loss in either army that day. Its flag so tattered that it was not unfurled. Of the events of the day, Union Major General Oliver Otis Howard wrote that the president was received with satisfaction and at times with naked enthusiasm. Later, the one-armed general heard several of the anecdotes that Lincoln was famous for telling and firsthand experienced his quick wit. While atop Bolivar Heights, the president looked down and noticed a small engine on one of the bridges below. He commented on its shrill and mournful whistle. He asked the name of the locomotive and, when told, suggested a better name. He thought the engine should be renamed in honor of the panic and terror that was caused by John Brown's raid almost three years earlier. Lincoln thought the engine should be called the Skeered Virginian. As the day ended, three large tents and bedding were set up for the president and his party in Harper's Ferry. McClellan bade adieu and returned to the bulk of his army some 17 miles north, up in the Sharpsburg, Maryland area. After a night of rain, October the 2nd dawned cool and Lincoln prepared for a morning of visiting with more troops. To do that, he made his way to Loudoun and Maryland Heights, and in doing so, many a common soldier saw and wrote of their seeing him. David Lane of the 17th Michigan wrote, He looks much better than the likeness we see of him, younger and not so long and lank. However, on Maryland Heights, Julian Hinckley of the 3rd Wisconsin wrote, He did full justice to his reputation for homeliness. He came entirely unannounced, but we hurriedly turned out the regiment and presented arms. And Amaziah James wrote what many probably thought. He looked pale and worn, as though the terrible care and responsibility of his position weighed heavily upon him. Late in the morning, the president descended east from Maryland Heights and found himself in Pleasant Valley, where he found Major General Alpheus Williams, who was in temporary command of the 12th Corps. They chatted. Three days later, Williams wrote to his daughters of the encounter. He wrote, The president was here a few days since. I had quite a long talk with him, sitting on a pile of logs. He is really the most unaffected, simple-minded, honest, and frank man I have ever met. I wish he had a little more firmness. Around noon, Lincoln and his party moved by carriage from the Harper's Ferry area to Sharpsburg. The 17-mile trip took them into the valley of the Antietam. Many years ago, this was the hunting ground of the Delaware and Catawba Indians. Back during the French and Indian War, a portion of Edward Braddock's men had marched through there on their way to Fort Duquesne. The valley had been populated by many immigrants from Germany and Switzerland who thought the countryside reminded them of their homeland. Nestled within the two towns of Sharpsburg and Shepherdstown, 
Both years before formally submitted to George Washington that he consider each a possible selection site to serve as the national capital. Here, John Brown stayed for some time at the Kennedy Farm, awaiting his moment to descend upon Harper's Ferry. The president shared a carriage with Major General Ambrose E. Burnside. As they drew near Sharpsburg, they stumbled upon a situation. Part of Burnside's 9th Army Corps, Hawkins Zouaves, the 9th New York, and others had surrounded a sutler's wagon, which was making its way down a country road and was loaded with bread. One of the soldiers pulled a lynch pin, and one of the wheels, conveniently for them, came off. As the wagon and its contents tumbled, the hungry soldiers flocked in like vultures. Into this free-for-all rolled the carriage, carrying Burnside and the president. Most of the men scattered. Matthew Graham and several of his ninth New York buddies froze, dropped their bread, and came stiffly to a salute. Burnside was flabbergasted. He stood in the carriage, shaking with rage, and ordered the men of the ninth to pursue those that had run. Lincoln never said a word. He just looked straight ahead. The president may have remembered his days as a captain in the Black Hawk War back in 1832, when his first command was answered by a collective, Go to hell! Some of the men were returned by Graham and his mates, and Burnside tongue-lashed them. He finally cooled down, and the men moved on. Meanwhile, the First Corps had been ordered to arms around noon for a 2 p.m. review by the president. One member of the party, sent to meet and greet the visiting commander-in-chief, was an artillery officer in the First Corps, Colonel Charles S. Wainwright. He was a Democrat and was quite critical of Lincoln and the Republican Party. He found the president seated in an ambulance with some, as he put it, western-looking politicians. Lincoln's long legs were doubled up almost to his chin, and the sight prompted him to write that the president was the ugliest and most gawky man he had ever seen. Regardless, the colonel and his party escorted Lincoln and McClellan to the Pry House, where from a high hill which had served as McClellan's headquarters for the battle, the general began to recount the bloody events of Wednesday, September the 17th. He pointed out the lay of the armies, and then sights forever burned into the American psyche, like Dunker Church, the Smoketown Road, Miller's Cornfield, the West Woods, the Sunken Road, Burnside's Bridge, the carnage in those nightmarish 12 hours of battle, 23,000 casualties, including nine Union and nine Confederate generals, one of every four combatants engaged down. McClellan lost 25% of his engaged force, Lee, 31%. And over those horrific 12 hours, 1,916 casualties every hour, 32 casualties every minute, and an American down for 12 hours every two seconds. 
The union casualties alone double that of Americans at D-Day 82 years later. McClellan described the battle from where he managed it. And that was part of the problem at the Pry House, some two miles from the fighting. The distance from the front certainly contributed to the reality that he had been given six opportunities to win a decisive battle and allowed each one to slip away. Back to our observer and Lincoln critic, Colonel Charles Wainwright. He grew exceedingly annoyed because he thought Lincoln showed little interest. Many of his first corps shared the negative energy because the president never made it to where they had been standing at arms, waiting since noon to be reviewed. They waited late into the afternoon that Thursday, October the 2nd, and finally were dismissed. They griped and sniped at Lincoln and the Republicans. Some admitted that they did not even want to see the president because of the slave issue and his Emancipation Proclamation. And it probably grew even more heated when they learned the review was rescheduled. Colonel Wainwright considered it all a very bad specimen of Western manners. Another officer, Major General Jacob Cox, begged to differ with the presidential party as they rode over the September 17th advance of Sumner Second Corps, Cox wrote, The president was observant and keenly interested in the field of battle, but made no display of sentiment. That evening, Lincoln stayed in a tent just south of Sharpsburg, right next to McClellan's. Two bands vied for his attention at the same time. And as usual, there was dinner, banter, and jokes. Yet, despite the levity, Ward Hill Lehman noted that he saw the president tabulating Union troops available for duty. The next morning was blanketed in early morning fog. Mr. Lincoln was up early and asked if Hatch would take a walk with him. Together, they walked in silence through the great tented city of McClellan's army. Upon reaching a commanding hill, Lincoln waved his hand and said dejectedly, Hatch, Hatch, what is all of this? Hatch answered, Why, this is the Army of the Potomac. But the president answered in a clear voice, No, Hatch, no. This is McClellan's bodyguard. As the morning progressed, there were more troops to visit and review. The Ninth Corps was first. The men who had stormed the lower bridge approached the town of Sharpsburg, but were turned back by Confederate Major General A.P. Hill's late attack. That morning of the 3rd, they were ordered under arms at 8. Lincoln and McClellan began the review around 10. Yet, another 21-gun salute and three rousing cheers began the proceedings. President wore a black suit and his stovepipe hat complete with a band of crepe around it. That done to still remember his son, Willie, who had passed back in February, we believe, of typhoid fever. He was astride the president, a mount that was so small his legs almost touched the ground. And in this fashion, he rode up and down the front and rear ranks, but dispensed with the men passing in review. Dr. Ellis remembered the occasion and noted that many spectators were there. 
He remembered rousing cheers for both the president and McClellan, but thought McClellan got the most. After the Ninth Corps review, the party, around noon, moved to inspect the Sixth Corps just north of Sharpsburg, and then they moved to the Stephen P. Grove Farm just off the Shepherdstown Road. There, the Fifth Corps of Major General Fitz John Porter was reviewed. At one point in this review, the president paused to admire a white horse that belonged to a Maine professor, and now officer, by the name of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain who wrote on seeing Lincoln, we could see the deep sadness in his face, feel the burden on his heart, thinking of his great commission to save this people, and knowing that he could do this no otherwise than he had been doing. And by and through the manliness of these men, the valor, the steadfastness, the loyalty, the devotion, the sufferings, and a thousand deaths of those into whose eyes his were looking how he shrunk from these costly sacrifices we could see. And we took him into our hearts with answering sympathy and gave him our pity in return. Then came a visit to the Grove home, Mount Airy as it was called, and which served as Porter's headquarters. Lincoln greeted the family and apologized for the damage done their farm. He then walked down a long hallway, littered with the broken bodies of wounded, both Union and Confederate. He greeted all. A correspondent with the presidential party described what happened next. The president remarked to the wounded Confederate that he stood before that if that gentleman and the others had no objection, he would be glad to take them by the hand. He said the solemn obligations which we owe our country and prosperity compel the prosecution of this war, and it followed that many were our enemies through uncontrollable circumstances, and he bore them no malice and could take them by the hand with sympathy and good feeling. After a short silence, Confederates began to come forward, and each silently but fervently shook the hand of the president. Mr. Lincoln and General McClellan then walked forward by the side of those who were wounded too seriously to be able to arise and bid them good cheer, assuring them that every possible care should be bestowed upon them to ameliorate their condition. It was a moving scene, and there was not a dry eye in the building, either among the Nationals or Confederates. Both the president and the general were kind in their remarks and treatment of the Confederate sufferers during this remarkable interview. The sight of so many wounded depressed the president, and after leaving the house, he turned to his friend Lehman and asked him to sing the song, a sad one, but a tune that was one of Lincoln's favorites. It was entitled, Twenty Years Ago. Upon its completion, another in the party suggested a livelier tune to break the melancholy mood. A comic song opera, Picayune Butler, was suggested. Observers and newsmen watched and some took offense. Later, in some newspapers, the incident was noted under the general headline, President Lincoln Tours the Antietam Battlefield. And some reported their interpretation of the requested upbeat song and its being played. 
Even though it was not the idea of Lincoln, some thought the president used the tune to make light of the plight of the wounded. Picayune Butler had been a harmless attempt to cheer the black mood of Mr. Lincoln, but no matter. Of all the anti-Lincoln attacks during the war, this one cut him the deepest. Later, back in Washington City, he considered writing an open letter to explain the situation that day, but then dismissed the idea. He did say to another, There has always been too much said about this falsehood. Let the thing alone. If I have not established character enough to give the lie to this charge, I can only say that I am mistaken in my own estimate of myself. In politics, every man must skin his own skunk, and these fellows are welcome to the hide of this one. It was while here at Mount Airy that photographer Alexander Gardner captured images of the visiting president. He made one before the review of the Fifth Corps and before leaving McClellan's headquarters. Then after the review of the Fifth Corps, with the Grove home in the background, Gardner and a group of images captured one of the most famous produced in the war. The only time during the entire war an image showed the commander-in-chief actually in the field with his generals. With him, frozen in time by the camera. George Armstrong Custer, George Gordon Meade, Winfield Scott Hancock, Alexander Webb, Henry Hunt, and Ambrose E. Burnside. After the review of the Fifth Corps and the visit of the wounded in the Grove home, all moved to the northwest of Sharpsburg to inspect the First Corps. Assembled and dismissed the day before, they this day had been ordered to arms at 11 a.m. It was now 3 in the afternoon. Colonel Wainwright remembered the visit. Mr. Lincoln was on horseback. He rode along the lines at a quick trot, taking little retire of the troops and half of the time not even looking at them. Not a word of approval, not even a smile of approbation. Lincoln's last day in the field led him back once again to the Pry House, where again the president visited Union wounded. One was Brigadier General Israel Richardson, who had been wounded leading his men in the attacks on the Confederate positions in the sunken road. Richardson lingered for yet another month before, on November the 2nd, he finally succumbed to his wounds. It was also on this morning that Gardner made the last series of his truly historic likenesses, all made just before the president was to depart. One image had Mr. Lincoln gathered with Alan Pinkerton and Major General John A. McLaren. Another, the president and McClellan, both seated and facing one another in a tent. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall. The two gazing at one another. Even in the image, an air of tension. And down in the lower left-hand corner of the tent, one of 39 Confederate battle flags captured during the fight along the banks of the Antietam. Around 10 a.m., Mr. Lincoln and his companions accompanied McClellan to South Mountain, where the commanding general bade farewell and the presidential party made its way to Frederick, Maryland. They arrived about 5 p.m. 
In the one half hour they were there, the president visited a wounded Union officer from the fight at South Mountain back on September the 14th and made two very short impromptu speeches, the last from the back of the train as it prepared to pull out of the South Market Street station. Then began the journey back to Washington City. Lincoln arrived at the Capitol around 10 p.m. Upon their arrival, they were greeted by the 24th Michigan, who were on their way to the front to join the famous Iron Brigade. How ironic, for it would be the 24th Michigan that two and a half years later would be selected as the honor guard for Lincoln's funeral. Those four days in October had been spent to thank the troops and to urge McClellan to pursue Lee's army into Virginia. It was only a few days after his return, Lincoln sensed that his mission was only half successful. Back in Maryland, in assessing Lincoln's visit, McClellan wrote his wife that the president was very kind, personally, told me he was convinced I was the best general in the country, etc., etc. He was very affable, and I really think he does feel very kindly towards me personally. Yet that personal affinity did not translate into action. Lincoln admitted to his personal secretary, John Hay, I went up to the field to try to get him to move and came back thinking he would move at once. But when I got home, he began to argue why he ought not to move. By the end of the month, the visit's intended goodwill was in ashes, as illustrated from yet another of McClellan's letters to his wife. In it, he fumed and resented being bombarded with insults and innuendos and accusations from men whom I know to be greatly my inferior socially, intellectually, and morally. He went on. There was never a truer epithet applied to a certain individual than that of the gorilla. He meant the president. Interesting, for Union Major General Alpheus Williams saw the same man and found him unaffected, honest, frank. George Brenton McClellan only saw one inferior in every respect, unworthy of his office, ignorant in the art of war, and captain of the despised radicals. It was about this time that a fellow Democrat visited McClellan. His name, William Aspinwall, and as Little Mac put it, Aspinwall counseled me to submit to the president's proclamation and quietly continue doing my duty as a soldier. I presume he is right. Perhaps that was on his mind when on October the 7th, the commanding general of the Army of the Potomac thought he should ease the distress that he believed Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had created within his army. In a message to that army, he agreed the issue was of supreme interest. And though it may have stirred unrest, McClellan reminded his men that the military was the servant of the civil government and also reminded them that the remedy for political error was the ballot box. The timing curious. As only the day before, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck in Washington City sent a dispatch to McClellan ordering him to cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy. However, because Little Mac still believed Lee outnumbered him, the Army of the Potomac's leader requested more men, more supplies, more horses, and hospital tents. 
With that, the telegraphic duel began. After a week passed and McClellan had not moved an inch, a letter was delivered to McClellan's tent. It was from the president, and it read, You remember my speaking to you of what I called your overcautiousness. Are you not overcautious when you assume that you cannot do what the enemy is constantly doing? In that message, Lincoln demonstrated that he shared something with Robert E. Lee, a killer instinct. McClellan responded on the 17th of October and promised an advance would be given serious consideration when men were shod and cavalry renovated. On the 22nd, McClellan wrote his commander-in-chief that he would advance on a line east of the Blue Ridge, a line Lincoln had suggested. But to do so, McClellan said he would need more infantry and cavalry. As to McClellan's concern about his mounted element, the president on October the 25th fired back. I have just read your dispatch about sore-tongued and fatigued horses. Will you pardon me for asking what the horses of your army have done since the Battle of Antietam that fatigues anything? On that very day, and I'm sure before he read Mr. Lincoln's barb, McClellan informed Washington City that he was worried that Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army might be at liberty to unite with Lee's command in Virginia. With this, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck coldly shot back that McClellan was only 20 miles from Lee and Bragg was 400 miles away. Though McClellan finally advanced toward the Potomac on October the 26th, 27th, it was glacial. With no promise of confronting Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, the president finally threw up his hands. On November the 5th, 1862, he ordered a change. Around 11.30 p.m. of Friday, November the 7th, in a snowstorm near Rectortown, Virginia, Major General George Brenton McClellan, the young Napoleon, like the man for whom he was nicknamed, was relieved of command and exiled. The situation, the absolute worst. A general without an army. And in that military purgatory, McClellan remained for the rest of the conflict. Lincoln needed a whip and traveled to western Maryland to ask that one be applied. McClellan never rose to the moment. And to win the war, to ensure emancipation, the 16th president would cast about another 16 months until, in the bull-dogged and determined form of Ulysses S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln would finally, finally find his general. When next we gather, we return to the event that began the long, dark slide toward secession and civil war. I hope you'll join us for the critical and consequential election of 1860. Please continue to be responsible and safe. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.